Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. What a privilege and honour to be here today to be with such esteemed people and wonderful people who've travelled all far and wide to be here uh, for this uh, wonderful uh, and really great way of talking about a treaty. I like to call it something like, is it a margarita? I don't want to say the dance one. That other one, yeah. Okay, and and as I was talking to someone coming across here, I was thinking everybody seemed to have forgotten, and we didn't show the uh, Barunga statement. We've seen the Uluru statement, but we didn't see the uh, Barunga one, which really, when it came down, and Bob, well, Bob Hawke was up there that time when he was Prime Minister, he brought it down and, and it was just forgotten and it was left in somebody else's house. But anyway, that's another story. But when he was making his speech up there at Gama, when the handover was being done, Bob Hawke, in his hands, he said, because of what he was doing, that a treaty should be done. And he said, and I will talk, and it'll be done by the next Prime Minister, the next, and the next, and the next, and the next. We're all still waiting. But we really got a wonderful, wonderful people here today, and I'd like to thank my friend Mick Dodson and his beautiful daughter, Shannon, to be here today, and, uh, and also now a wonderful friend, that I've known for quite a while, Mr. Robert French. Thank you, and I welcome you to the land of my ancestors. Thank you. Thank you, Auntie Matilda. And as Auntie said, you know, we're very grateful to be welcome to your country. We've been uh, at conferences for the past couple of days, but the ANU has had almost two weeks of. Um, activities related to Indigenous people. But if, and if I can do a quick um, commercial for tomorrow night, um, Archie Roach will be playing at the um, Llewellyn Hall, and the university will be recognising his contribution to music and to the understanding of our people through music. But this afternoon, to conclude our deliberations on treaty, the seventh state, the um, seats in Parliament and Auntie? Yeah, I just want to mention for the first time ever since we've all been here, a politician is amongst our midst. And I'd like to thank uh, my friend, Linda, Linda Burney, mm -hmm. MP. Thank you, sister, for being here. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. It's good to have you here.
Could I please invite um, the Chancellor of the University of Western Australia, Professor French. His Honour said he'd be happy to take some questions at the end as well. Thank you. Thanks, Asmi, and uh, thank you, Jordan, uh, for that, uh, that uh, lovely welcome. Um, I notice on the uh, program that this is billed as an hour lecture. Well, uh, I remember when I was in criminal practice, uh, addressing a jury, 40 minutes was eye glazing time. <laughs> I usually test, test the attention span of, uh, of most people. I've had a look at the program, and it's obvious that it's been a very uh, intensive uh, couple of days, and you seem to have covered a lot of the, uh, uh, what one might call the, uh, the mechanics and the uh, Principles and uh, uh, many of the issues which uh, which interact in uh, in this this area. Uh, I propose to address uh, my uh, remarks at a, a certain level of generality or principle, going to how we can link particular concepts and how we can deal with arguments about sovereignty, for example, uh, which is sometimes the political hot button that uh, livens up. Uh, um, uh, opposition to the notion of treaty and agreement. So let me start by observing that um, recognition, sovereignty, uh, Makarata and the voice are linked concepts. Uh, the Uluru Statement from the Heart declared the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes to have been the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands, <coughs> which they possessed under their own laws and customs. And the statement explained its concept of sovereignty in these words, the sovereignty is a spiritual notion, the ancestral tie between the land or mother nature and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom remain attached thereto and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil or better of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished and coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. And uh, on that basis, the statement calls for the establishment of a First Nations voice to be enshrined in the Constitution, a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of agreement-making and truth-telling about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander history. The statement says, uh, evocatively, in 1967 we were counted, in 2017 we seek to be heard. And in that statement, we see links between notions of recognition, sovereignty, agreement and voice. And those concepts interact, but I think the informing principle is recognition. Uh, to recognise another can mean no more than saying to yourself, I know that person. That's an act of cognition. However, recognition has another meaning involving an act of will. To acknowledge the existence or legality or validity of another or to treat someone as worthy of consideration. It's an act of the will based on a true seeing. And that kind of recognition carries with it the implication of engagement with the person recognised. And the primary way of engaging with those to whom we accord that kind of recognition is communication. It involves listening and response, and in particular, hearing proposals for ongoing engagement and response. It is the foundation of agreement. Uh, legal consideration of the notion of recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples came into prominence in the development of the common law of native title. And there is some guidance which can be derived from that discussion in relation to the significance of the forms of recognition, constitutional or otherwise. 
the interaction between recognition, sovereignty, and the basis upon which Makarata or agreement making may proceed, and the interaction between recognition, sovereignty, agreement, and a voice to the parliament. The history of explicit <coughs> non-recognition of indigenous societies as societies governed by law is well known. We can trace it back to the observation of the Supreme Court of the Colony of New South Wales in 1833, uh, that the Aboriginal inhabitants of the colony were wandering tribes living without certain habitation and without lords who were never in the situation of a conquered people. A non-recognition which was repeated by the Privy Council in 1889 when it described the colony of New South Wales, which was then most of Australia, I suppose, as a tract of territory practically unoccupied without settled inhabitants or settled law at the time when it was peacefully annexed to the British dominions. And our Australian history of explicit non-recognition extended into 1971, when the Supreme Court of the Northern Territory in Malirupam and Nabalco felt it was not in power to decide that New South Wales came into existence as anything other than a settled or occupied colony. That is, within the category pronounced by the Privy Council in 1889. And there followed the Woodward Royal Commission, led by one of the council in the Malirupam case, um, it's Redwood Woodward, which led to the enactment of the Aboriginal Land Rights Northern Territory Act and Land Rights Statutes, uh, which followed in New South Wales, Queensland and South Australia, following the same general mechanism of administrative uh, recognition of traditional ownership leading to a grant effected by legislation or some legislative process. That concept of traditional ownership under the Northern Territory Land Rights Act was repeatedly before the High Court in litigation arising under that act and before Mabo number two was decided. I think I counted 14 cases which came to the High Court. So you get repeated exposure of the High Court before Mabo number two was decided of concepts of traditional ownership which were embedded in the Northern Territory statute. Because the Northern Territory was rather fighting tooth and nail almost every aspect of the operation of uh, that legislation at the time. And so it's a, a theory in a sense that the judges of the High Court, in a way that would not have been possible at 1971, had become sensitised to some of these concepts. And uh, of course, and no coincidence that Justice John Tui, the first Land Rights Commissioner, who'd been embedded deeply in the uh, 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 Land Commission process, uh, was a member of the court when Mabo came before it. Now, in Mabo, the idea of recognition of native title by the common law was closely linked to notions of the sovereignty of the Crown over the land it acquired at the time of annexation. The question of sovereignty arose because an argument was advanced that when the Crown acquired sovereignty at the time of annexing the colonies, uh, it had extinguished pre-existing native title for the purposes of recognition by the common law. That is to say, the common law could not recognise native title because of the Crown's acquisition of sovereignty. And the court rejected that proposition. It said sovereignty was really legal authority to deal with the land. And they used the term radical title, I think, as a, an alternative to that. And that limitation uh, on the effect at common law of the sovereignty of the Crown was critical to the capacity of the common law to recognise uh, traditional native title. So the assertion of sovereignty by the British Crown over the Australian colonies carried with it the authority under the non-Indigenous legal system, the colonising or settler system, whatever word you like to use, to govern and deal with the land and waters governed, governed by the annexations. 
it had nothing to say about and no legal impact on the responsibility and authority which Indigenous people had under their own legal systems in relation to their traditional land and waters. These were two distinct legal systems. Recognition was a rule by which, or a mechanism, by which one <coughs> could, uh, uh, could replicate uh, uh, rights and interests existing in the other. The legal act of recognition, the first legal act of recognition was reflected in the Declaration of the High Court on the 3rd of June 1992 that the Miriam people are entitled as against the whole world to possession, occupation, use and enjoyment of the lands of the Murray Islands. And that was fundamentally a statement of law under the common law, that is to say non-Indigenous common law, made within the framework of the non-Indigenous legal system. And then we had the further declaration by the High Court that that title of the Merriam people was subject to the power of the Parliament of Queensland and the Governing Council of Queensland to extinguish that title by valid exercise of their respective powers. So coupled with that historic act of recognition was a statement about extinguishment. And it's important to say something about the nature of both of these concepts in their common law setting. The common law of native title, as enunciated in Mabo number two, did not involve any yielding of Crown sovereignty. It rested upon the unchallengeable proposition from the non-Indigenous legal perspective uh, that the Crown acquired sovereignty over the land when it annexed the Australian colonies. So recognition we can see as the outcome of the application of rules under which certain rights arising at common law are determined by reference <coughs> to rights vested in Indigenous communities uh, arising from their relationship to land or waters and their law and custom. Extinguishment by executive or legislative action is the result of the exercise of the non-Indigenous sovereignty which bars or qualifies that common law. So it's all about the non-Indigenous legal system. Now, there was a sense, and I think even in Jared uh, Brennan's judgment in Mabo, you can see a little bit of elision between the notion of extinguishment as something which actually directly affects uh, traditional native title on the one hand and extinguishment uh, uh, as a rule of common law about the common law rules of recognition uh, on the other. So uh, neither recognition or extinguishment on this approach has any effect on traditional law and custom or the authority under that law and custom that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people enjoy with respect to their land or waters. Thirteen years after Marlow number two, a full court of the Federal Court, upon which I sat in 2005, expanded upon the concept of recognition in Northern Territory, and it was Northern Territory in Aluwa, in a way that is relevant to the connected uh, issue of sovereignty. We said of recognition, it derives from the human act by which one people recognises and thereby respects another, by the process which it names, aspects of an Indigenous society's relationship to land and waters are translated into a set of rights and interests existing under non-Indigenous laws. The choice of the term recognition links it to the normative framework established by the common law and by the act itself, as evidenced in the preamble, that being, of course, the Native Title Act. Recognition is not a process which has any transforming effect upon traditional laws and customs or the rights and interests in which, in their own terms, they give rise. The term extinguishment merely refers to the withholding or withdrawal of recognition 
and interests where the exercise of non-Indigenous sovereignty is reflected in legislative or executive acts which are inconsistent with recognition. Extinguishment, like recognition, is silent on the rights and interests which arise under traditional law and custom and the relationship which they may reflect between an Indigenous society and its country. Now, there is a question whether the concept of sovereignty can be transposed from its place as a colonising term into the relationship between Indigenous communities and their land. And this has some significance to the idea of the treaty, the compact or the Makarata. The suggestion has been made in opposition to the proposal, and you've heard it more than once, that uh, the notion of a treaty implies the existence of inconsistent sovereignties over the same land, and therefore two nations negotiating with each other in one nation. It, however, the recognition of one legal authority over land <coughs> by another legal authority is central to the common law of native title. We already have a conceptual model there. It provides an answer to the sovereignty-based objection to a treaty or makarata. Having said that, the political reality is that sometimes the term sovereignty can distract from what is really occurring when an agreement or makarata is made. So there's a question to what extent one has to be wedded to the use of that term as distinct from what it means, which is authority over the land. And that's how the court uh, in Mabo itself translated sovereignty in the non-Indigenous sense. That's all, all it gives is authority over the land from the uh, Crown's perspective. This notion of the use of sovereignty, of course, goes back quite a while uh, in Indigenous discourse uh, since the 1970s. In 1979, in Coe and the Commonwealth, the plaintiff, Paul Coe, purported to sue the Commonwealth on behalf of the Aboriginal community and nation of Australia. He asserted his membership of the Wiradjuri tribe and authority from it and other tribes and the whole Aboriginal community and nation to bring the action. And among the allegations in his statement of claim, the following appeared. Clans, tribes and groups of Aboriginal people travel widely over the continent, now known as Australia, developing a system of interlocking rights and responsibilities, making contact with other tribes and larger groups of Aboriginal peoples, thus forming a sovereign Aboriginal nation. So that's what one of the claims was in his statement of claim. Sir Anthony Mason, as sitting as a single justice, struck out uh, the statement of claim and refused leave to amend it. On appeal, the High Court upheld his decision. And speaking of the sovereignty claim, uh, Justice Gibbs said, the Aboriginal people are subject to the laws of the Commonwealth and of the states and territories in which they respectively reside. They have no legislative, executive or judicial organs by which sovereignty might be exercised. If such organs existed, they would have no powers except such as the law of the Commonwealth or of a state or territory might confer upon them. Now note here, the voice that you are hearing when I quote that is the voice of a judge speaking about the non-Indigenous legal system. He is not speaking about the Indigenous legal system. He's saying you can't come into the non-Indigenous system and assert authority for the purpose of the non-Indigenous system. About 14 years later, uh, revisiting the pleading in another case brought by Coe, following Mabo No. 2, by then Chief Justice Sir Anthony Mason said, Mabo No. 2 is entirely at odds with the notion that sovereignty, now here's his qualifier, the notion that sovereignty adverse to the Crown resides in the Aboriginal people of Australia. The decision is equally at odds with the notion that there resides in the Aboriginal people 
a limited kind of sovereignty embraced in the notion that they are a domestic dependent nation entitled to self-government and full rights, or that as a free and independent people, quoting from the pleading, they are entitled to any rights and interests other than those created or recognised by the laws of the Commonwealth, the State of New South Wales and the Common Law. Now those two judgments from which I have quoted make it plain that within the non-Indigenous Australian legal and constitutional framework, no claim for Indigenous sovereignty adverse to the Crown can be recognised. That said, concepts of sovereignty in the sense of authority over country within the Indigenous legal framework and within the non-Indigenous legal framework are obviously capable of coexistence and mutual recognition in the same way that uh, the uh, legal regime which under Indigenous law gives right to, uh, rights of interest in country can coexist <coughs> with a non-Indigenous legal regime which can make agreements about or recognise those rights for the purposes of the non-Indigenous legal regime in the exercise of its own authority about country. So an agreement between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians can recognise and acknowledge the traditional law and custom of Indigenous communities across Australia, their historical relationship with their country, their prior occupancy of the continent, and that there are those living today who maintain and assert their traditional rights and interests. Such an agreement can accommodate the notion of sovereignty, if you want to use that word, under traditional law and custom in the sense of traditional authority over land and waters supported by the spiritual connection. However, as I said earlier, it is a term imported by the colonising legal system. Whether or not it is usefully invoked by Indigenous people is a question which requires some reflection. An agreement can be an act of recognition of Indigenous status as Australia's first peoples and authority under traditional law and custom which is not adverse to Crown sovereignty. But it's preferable that the baggage around that important term not be allowed to distract from the true nature of recognition and the reflection of recognition in an agreement and in the establishment of a voice to the Parliament. Moving on, constitutional recognition of Australia's first people may involve a larger concept of recognition than that which emerges from the native title process, a concept which cannot be distilled down to a statement about legal rights. Recognition can take more than one form. Recognition can be framed as a statement of acknowledgement of the claims of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to be the first peoples of Australia, or the reality of that. It can extend to a recognition of their traditional spiritual authority of the land. Such recognition does not involve any compromise of the sovereignty of the Crown. And it is difficult to see how its acceptance by the Indigenous people would amount to a ceding or compromise of their claim to sovereignty or traditional authority in the sense that it was used in the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Professor George Williams, writing in the Indigenous Law Bulletin in December 2012, argued that Australia can accommodate competing and diverse claims to sovereignty. Giving proper recognition to the sovereignty of the people would not fracture the nation. I think he's borrowing from someone like um, uh, Keith Winshuttle who talked about fragmentation, rising uh, of treaties. Um, he argued that Australia, uh, would, and would make us stronger by recognising our past and the legitimate claims of the First Peoples. And I've often said in presentations, and I don't think it's a particularly novel approach, that we are a country overlaid by multiple histories. There's the history of the First People, which goes back uh, tens of thousands of years. 
There is the history of the colonisers and there is the history of those who have come after from countries all over the world. So it is recognising, accepting our his, part of our history, which is part of our, uh, part of our um, identity. On the other hand, uh, I'm sorry, he pointed to the way in which sovereignty had already been accommodated in the legal systems of other nations, referring to the United States, Canada and New Zealand, each of whom has historically entered into treaties with a level of shared sovereignty with their nations. On the other hand, Williams did concede that seeking to write Aboriginal sovereignty into the Constitution could have a perverse outcome. It could undermine any strong assertion of Indigenous sovereignty due to it being given recognition within the foundational legal document of the settler state. He argued that the sovereignty of Aboriginal people should be recognised in the deed and action of entering into a treaty, not by seeking to have this recognised on their behalf by the state. I'm not sure I feel quite uh, as uh, firmly about that as the uh, view that George expressed. I mean, uh, recognition of native title doesn't compromise uh, at common law, doesn't compromise the traditional authority uh, on the model that I've already explained, which reflects the jurisprudence of the, the courts. Uh, Professor Megan Davis, Davis, a member of the expert panel on the recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders in the Constitution, in that same edition of the Indigenous Law Bulletin, argued that on the other hand, that constitutional recognition does not foreclose on Aboriginal sovereignty. And that reflected advice taken by the expert panel. And she wrote, nor should constitutional recognition in general have any detrimental effect beyond what may have already been suffered on future projects aimed at a greater place for customary law in the governments of Australia. Uh, the panel in its report concluded that a majority of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people would support a proposal for constitutional recognition but their support would depend on its form and whether it was also accompanied by a change to the body of the Constitution. Expressly on the question of sovereignty, they concluded that any proposal relating to constitutional recognition of the sovereign status of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people would be highly contested by many Australians and likely to jeopardise broad public support for the panel's recommendations. So while questions relating to sovereignty were likely to continue to be the subject of debate in the community, including among Indigenous people, the panel did not consider that those questions could be resolved or advanced at that time by inclusion in the referendum proposal. Given the sometimes intense nature of debates about constitutional change, and uh, <coughs> we look at this morning's Australian, I think there's an article by Greg Sheridan, which has a, another go in the general direction of uh, uh, recognition. Uh, or against the general direction of recognition, it is understandable that there will be less risk associated with a statutory declaration of recognition which might or might not use some qualifying words about Indigenous and non-Indigenous sovereignty. In the end, of course, it's a matter for Indigenous people to judge which of either path they wish to pursue. Uh, Dylan Leno, in his excellent book, Constitutional Recognition, First Peoples and the Australian Settler State, which was published uh, last year, talks about recognition beyond the limits of the big C constitution and in what he calls the small c constitution. And with that terminology, he embraces institutions, practices and norms falling outside a codified constitutional text that nevertheless concern the fundamental distribution of public power within the political community. Used in this extended sense, um, the concept of recognition includes a treaty or makarata entered into between the executive government of the Commonwealth and a suitably representative Indigenous body. It could also embrace sub-national agreements 
involving the executive governments of the states and territories, uh, not, uh, not only an overarching agreement involving the executive government of the Commonwealth, which all are party. Parliamentary ratification or approval of this kind of agreement would not confer upon them any statutory effect, and there's well-established High Court authority to say that if we enter into a treaty, uh, into, um, I'm sorry, uh, uh, if a, an executive government of, a, say, a state, or the Commonwealth, for that matter, enters into an agreement with, say, some company, a state agreement for resource development, the mere ratification or approval of that agreement does not turn it into a statute. And that goes right back to the case of Whitcomb and Sankey, which held that in relation to the financial agreement about the states. Uh, and similarly, when Parliament ratifies an international treaty, that of itself doesn't turn it into a law. It has to be uh, enacted. So ratification of uh, an agreement by Parliament, approval, may have very important symbolic effect and may be the trigger for various operational aspects of the treaty, but doesn't turn it into, uh, into a uh, statute. Uh, Ratification, as uh, Dylan Leno conceives it, is not merely symbolic. It does affect the distribution of public power, whether inside or outside a big C constitution. <coughs> Moreover, as he suggests, recognition can be viewed as a dynamic process subject to ongoing contest about its terms and or its future modification, supplementing or replacement. He casts it for the foreseeable future as a work in progress, and there's much to be said for that. And if one understands that right at the outset, I think one of the troubles that arose in um, Canada with some of the big uh, regional agreements into which they entered many, many years ago is that new generations arose and suddenly started revisiting those agreements, saying to their elders, you know, you, were, you, you sort of sold us out or you, 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 you um, yielded too much and we need to renegotiate these things. So if one goes from the outset, to an, uh, commences with an understanding that there is a work in progress, that these things can be to some extent open textured um, and adjustable according to changing perceptions, changing conditions, then that's, uh, that's not a good thing. You don't have to uh, cross every T and dot every I. And in contract law, you have relational contracts which are open-ended and do evolve, even in the world of commerce, so there's nothing unusual about that. Recognition, of course, and the extended understanding of that concept expounded by Dr. Lino is already a fact. It happens at thousands of events, large and small, across the country in welcomes to country and acknowledgements of traditional ownership. The constitutions of all the Australian states contain statements of recognition. My own home state, uh, WA, in the Constitution Act 1889, has included this recital since 2015. Whereas the Parliament resolves to acknowledge the Aboriginal people as the first people of Western Australia and traditional custodians of the land, the said Parliament seeks to effect a reconciliation with the Aboriginal people of Western Australia. Recognition in the national constitution uh, would reflect an already existing national growth of respect for our first peoples and thus for their full, rich and long history on this continent. However, it's important to observe that the provision of a first people's voice and the establishment of a Makarata process may be said themselves to imply recognition. They are a species of recognition in the extended sense, perhaps without the need for an explicit statement of recognition. And those mechanisms embody that respectful engagement, which I suggested earlier, is the heart of recognition in the sense in which we use it in this, uh, in this discussion. An important example of recognition uh, reflected in an agreement is the Noongar Settlement, given effect by a statute of the West Australian Parliament 
in charge of the Noongar uh, Act, Noongar Kuran Nicha Budawan Past, Present, Future Act 2016, WA. And that act is described in its short title as an act for the recognition of the Noongar people as the traditional owners of land in the southwest of the state. And it has a preamble which expands upon that recognition, although it doesn't use the term sovereignty. <coughs> and in section five it says, Parliament acknowledges and honours the Noongar people as the traditional owners of the Noongar land. Parliament recognises the living culture, spiritual, familial and social relationship that the Noongar people have with the Noongar lands and the significant and unique contribution that the Noongar people have made, are making and will continue to make to the heritage, cultural identity, community and economy of the state. The Act expressly does not create any legal rights or interests, nor does it affect the interpretation of any law of the state or any law that applies in the state. Nevertheless, linked with the Noongar settlement, uh, which is of course a real and concrete thing, it comes close to a concept of Indigenous sovereignty, at least in the spiritual and traditional sense, that is not in any way, to use Sir Anthony Mason's word, adverse to the sovereignty of the Crown. Harry Hobbs and George Williams have written earlier this year in the Sydney, uh, uh, last year, I'm sorry, in the Sydney Law Review that the Noongar Settlement is, from their perspective, a species of treaty. And they observe that on first principles, and by reference to the modern treaty-making process in Canada, a treaty contains three elements. One, recognition that Indigenous people are polities and so are distinctive and differentiated from other citizens within the state. Two, that settlement <coughs> is achieved by a broad-ranging political agreement negotiated in good faith and in a manner respectful of each party's standing as a polity, and three, that the state recognises or establishes and resources structures of culturally appropriate governance with powers of decision-making and control that amount to at least a limited form of self-government. And they argue that the Noongar settlement comprises the first treaty between Indigenous peoples and a state in Australia. It demonstrates uh, how much of the current debate uh, uh, by contrast, maybe misdirected a little in focusing too much on the idea of a national treaty. Uh, things like the Noongar Treaty can provide the basis for further treaties, further agreements with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, which will mark an important break from a system that for so many decades has disregarded the views of Indigenous Australians and reinforced their feelings of powerlessness. There was a very important uh, psychological shift when David Tidal came in and uh, uh, I think Mick might remember uh, Marla Bohr, uh in South Australia and there was a, a property north of Marlborough called the Rose Station and I was president of the Title Tribunal and there'd been a claim put over the property and the, the pastoral owner was white hot with anger. Um, in fact, I remember the sign at the entrance to the property which said, South Australian civil servants not welcome this extent for all other liars, cheats and thieves. So you can imagine, <laughs> you can imagine what a, uh, an official from the Native Title Tribunal <laughs> was like. Anyway, we couldn't even get uh, him and the Indigenous uh, people to meet because it all had to be done by lawyers and ex parte meetings and so forth. But um, at the end of a rather unproductive discussion with me, he sent me off to a big uh, uh, machine shed or farm shed uh, near his house and there were a group of about five or six of his neighbours there and they gave me a can of cold VB and started sort of shouting at me. Um, and I do remember one of them saying in a conciliatory tone, <coughs> um, you know, they ring me up and say, uh, uh, can I uh, come and uh, you know, shoot a roo or catch a fish in the creek? And I say, yeah, and they say, thanks boss. 
And I said provocatively, maybe they're tired of calling you boss. <laughs> and that was the problem. It had been grace and favour, and suddenly these people were turning up with rights. And that does engender. And, and to recognise and accept and be able to deal with that, which ultimately I think generally the pastoral industry's managed to do, the sky hasn't fallen in, um, uh, uh, gives us some uh, optimism that it is possible, as in the Noongar agreement case, to have agreements in which each side recognises the authority of the other without either compromising their authority in the sense of the fundamental principles underlying <coughs> each one's legal, uh, legal system. Uh, now, against that uh, background, sometimes arcane debates about sovereignty might fall away as largely irrelevant and leave space for the pursuit of regional and also, of course, a national agreement which may or may not be called a treaty. It doesn't matter so much what it is unless you think there's some particular normative and symbolic weight attached to it. I, I did like the concept of Makarata because it, it, uh, it had a, um, or the term, because it uh, seemed to have it not an imported notion about it, uh, which treaty, of course, does. Um, of course, recognition and the respect that comes with it can be given and made practical at a national level through the mechanism of a voice to the parliament representative of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And former Chief Justice Murray Gleeson has recently spelt out the case for the voice, which is supported by the Uluru Statement from the Heart and by existing precedents for extra-parliamentary advisory bodies. And I wrote a piece also basically supporting of what he had to say. Now, of course, a constitutional embodiment of a voice could take a number of forms. In theory, the constitution itself could establish and spell out its function and composition and means of selection. But that would be a departure from the generally broad terms in which the constitution is expressed and would introduce uh, quite undesirable and unworkable rigidity, particularly if you're committing to a process which has the capacity to be dynamic, open-textured and capable <coughs> of development and adjustment. Alternatively, the Constitution could provide in spare terms for the existence of an institutional voice to act as a means of communication between the First Peoples and the Parliament and then leave it to the Parliament to establish its detailed design by legislation. And I suppose such a constitutional provision could incorporate a specific preamble containing a statement of recognition. Now, as I said before, the very act of providing for a voice is itself an important act of recognition in the sense that I used <coughs> at, the, uh, at the outset. Of course, a further alternative is simply for Parliament to use its existing legislative powers to enact legislation creating uh, an institution called the voice. The Parliament will, of course, finally decide in the exercise of its legislative powers the form of the voice, I think, its functions and its mode of selection. It's critical, however, that the legislative design also reflect, so far as possible, a consensus of representatives of Indigenous Australia, whether or not there may be disagreement on detail. And uh, the first recommendation in the final report of the Joint Select Committee on Constitutional Recognition was for a process of co-design, and I, as I understand it, the Minister has begun that process with the establishment of a panel, albeit he uh, has uh, uh, excluded the possibility uh, of a constitutional um, embodiment of the authority to create the voice, at least for the time being. But you know, a week's a long time in politics, and so you, you might um, set up uh, a, uh, a voice, and people get used to the idea, and it works, um, and there are benefits, and they might say, why not put it in the Constitution? On the other hand, they say, why do we need it in the Constitution? You don't know which way that would go. The voice would presumably give advice 
not only in relation to legislation existing or proposed and law reform measures, but also on current or proposed administrative policies and programs. I think that can't be underestimated. Um, we've seen the, um, the debates in recent times about the administration of um, uh, community development programs in remote areas and uh, the impact that they have. And there have been some very strong statements made. So something like a voice uh, uh, that uh, could uh, give a focused and uh, not just a community uh, calling out in the wilderness, but a voice <coughs> which brings that right to the centre of power would be uh, a, a very useful thing. Um, and uh, I, I include administrative programs and policies in a voice to the parliament, which is about lawmaking, because ultimately the executive government is responsible to the parliament for its carriage out, for its carriage of such policies. So there's no reason to just draw the boundaries around laws or proposed laws. The composition of the voice and the mode of selection of its members will be critical to it having the natural authority of representative legitimacy and there will no doubt be a question about the interaction between the voice and other Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander organisations at a local and sub-national uh, level. There is a question about the mechanism for communication between the voice and the parliament, which may also uh, be effectively communication to the executive government. One way of achieving that, and I think you need uh, an institutional mechanism for ensuring that there is an ongoing communication with uh, an ear which has the expertise to listen and hear, which Parliament collectively uh, uh, is not well adapted to do on a narrowly focused issue. And one way would be the legislative creation of a joint standing committee of the Parliament which will receive submissions and reports from the voice and review its operations regularly. And funding could be made available by direct appropriation from the Parliament subject to the usual accountability standards with a suitably qualified and experienced secretariat and a degree <coughs> of longevity and therefore continuity in the membership of the committee, the committee can become an effective listener and first responder. Uh, of course, the First People's Voice should not necessarily be seen as independent of the agreement-making process, for surely it can operate in parallel with any Makarata Commission or Tribunal and feed into its operations. Challenges arise if you try to make and this is, of course, a matter for, for um, the um, co-design to um, process to consider. If you try to make the voices functions justiciable, uh, uh, in, suppose you impose an obligation on a minister <coughs> proposing uh, a law which may directly, <coughs> I think Cheryl Saunders suggested, which may directly affect Indigenous people one way or another, and that's a problem, the word directly, you impose an obligation on the minister to do that uh, before submitting the law to Parliament. Now, does that mean that you can seek an injunction restraining the minister from presenting the law to the Parliament unless and until the minister has complied with that condition? Or rather, is it a matter for the Parliament to insist upon that requirement in the exercise of its intramural procedures? So justiciability attached to the functions of the voice and the obligations that it might cast upon government in consultation and, and so forth um, is, a, is an area which has to be considered very carefully. Do you put it into the courts or do you make sure that there are mechanisms within the parliament that, um, uh, that uh, deal with it? <coughs> anyway, um, that I think is uh, as much as I want to say. The notions of recognition, sovereignty, the first people's voice, and Treaty or Makarata are interdependent. 
and it's useful to view them as a whole, informed by historical awareness and respectful uh, engagement, which lies at the heart of recognition. And that model of what we uh, call sovereignty, which says two legal systems, two societies <coughs> can recognise each other's authority and the legitimacy of each other's legal systems uh, in a way that is not adverse to each other, but uh, a win-win uh, without compromising the sovereignty or authority of either. And uh, as I say, we have within a certain area of discourse a model for that in native title recognition. Thanks. Thank you very much, um, um, Professor French, for your... I learned a bit more today about <coughs> something I thought I, learned, uh, I knew everything about. <laughs> um, Never too old to learn, can't we? Th that's right. The, um, as you know, there is... Um, um, native title claimants uh, have to <coughs> establish <coughs> certain matters um, in accordance with uh, the law and custom of their ancestors, um, which they're largely still following. Uh, similarly, with uh, land rights claimants in the Northern Territory have to uh, reference their law and custom in order to establish their traditional ownership. Um, this is recognised, that law and custom is recognised by the Federal Parliament. Um, my question is, um, law and custom must have a sovereign. Sovereign. So who is the sovereign? Well, that's a particular model of legal theory. I mean, law and custom, uh, at least in the way that it's uh, been, uh, what's happening in the non-Indigenous jurisprudential theory has been dropped on to this thing. I think it came out of broadly uh, broadly with the notion of Indigenous societies. And so you see the authority existing in the Indigenous societies without, and if you had to talk about a sovereign, So I think you can talk about uh, you can talk about uh, <coughs> but, uh, why not just say uh, collective authority? Uh, I mean that's, that's another word, but it gets away from some of this colonising history. We borrowed this term, and it's been generating some reactions. I mean I'm not saying that those are opposed to melt away. Incidentally, uh, just I thought the question you were going to ask me was related to the, uh, the fact 
actual uh, connection of the country at the time, and it's a story that you don't have to go through the whole process of requiring the court to find all the evidence that there's a positive inference of connection back to annexation. And it gets so elaborate. Uh, I remember I, I sat on the Barbie uh, Jarvis case, and we had, we had linguists to look at density of environmental references in the language, we had archaeologists looking at fish feeders and occupation at the time, we had the anthros, of course. In, in the act of recognition, in the act of recognition, the original claim to Australia, when you examine the logbook of Lieutenant Cook, you see that he, uh, as I understand, a logbook must be beyond reproach in integrity. <coughs> and I, I would take that as right. He logged that there were people living on the shores in houses in Botany Bay. He logged that. Then he went north, and all the way up north he kept logging that he saw evidence of people living on the shores of this new land. And when he arrived at Possession Island, which was vacant and empty, it, he made it very clear that he raised the colours on behalf of King George III. Now, when he raised those colours and claimed that land south on the basis of it being terra nullius, it was a lie. How, did you, how can you, you justify and turn a lie into a truth to make it a, 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 a truthful transaction? Well, the, the law is uh, used to the notion of legal fictions. <laughs> and, uh, what we have is a legal system non-indigenous legal system which says the Crown acquired the sovereignty regardless of uh, you know, the historical situation at the time and uh, uh, that's it that's the reality with which they're with which they're dealing and I'm not here to justify that I'm just having to say as we all know that's what we have to deal with we have to deal with two systems and how they can they can interact fruitfully two perspectives on the world two senses of ownership I see it differently because he had he had a document, he had a document telling him that natives already lived in this country, and that he must treat them with respect. Now that is a long way from being respectful to claim their homelands on behalf of the crown, and it also makes the crown of England today still sitting on a lie, and it has to be it has to be rectified. I think most of the early colonial governments in their commissions or letters of patent uh, were told to duly uh, respect, etc., the Aboriginal inhabitants of the continent. So that was all there in paper. Uh, of course, we know that uh, history is a bit different.
Um, thanks, Uncle Ozzy. It's a really important point. Um, so it really comes down to, you know, um, two worldviews and, like, really, what is the legitimacy of the Crown? Because it never really got any legitimacy in this country except for through theft and terror. Um, and so I'd probably just say a couple of quick things. Um, you know, for me, and I know, like, a lot of other people share my view, um, but... A voice to Parliament's nothing. It's not worth fighting for. It's an advisory-only panel with, um, you know, no real powers. Um, um, Makarata, it doesn't have a legal precedent. You know, there's a... All around the world, there's a precedent of treaties. What's a Makarata? What form does that take? There's no precedent to that. Um, so is that some watered-down domestic agreement that we don't see any real rights for Aboriginal people? There's a lot of concern about that word and I've heard that sort of expressed um, through other people. Um, Aboriginal people aren't in the constitution. That's why they're wanting to change a constitution to put Aboriginal people in the constitution. Um, there's currently no head of power to make any laws over Aboriginal people. Um, you know, there, there isn't a, a, a true head of power that's ever been established and this is why this process is going through, is to try and get control over Aboriginal people and Aboriginal sovereignty. Um, you know, um, what else do I want to say? Um, Aboriginal people are sovereign. The, the, the Crown can't um, establish how they acquired sovereignty. How did they get it? Did they buy it? Uh, no. Did they do a treaty? No. There has been no proper transitional process of the Crown, the Crown acquiring sovereignty. I think that's what the sovereignty movement's about for so long, is just saying that the Crown doesn't have proper title and it never did. Um, you know, and how do you lose um, sovereignty? You can consent to be governed um, and ask for a foreign legal system to make laws on your behalf. Sovereign nations don't do this. Um, and the Crown, as we know, is a killer and in many people's eyes is like a lot, not a legitimate, um, you know, authority in this country. And just to go, you know, back, um, there's hardly been any actual you know, sort of surveys of Aboriginal people or a voting mechanism where Aboriginal people can go, you know, we do or do not want to be in the constitution. That never happened. Um, and the one um, piece of research that I saw found through Indigenous X and Celeste Little that over 87% of Aboriginal people disagree with constitutional recognition. Um, and I suggest that the Western legal system has failed us epically in this country. If you look at since 1788, we're at the point of absolute environmental breakdown and mass extinction. There is no future in this Western legal system in this country, really. Look at it, you know, the, the rivers are dying, um, the environment's collapsing. So, you know, the people who know best how to take care of this land are the ones who need to be at the forefront and running it. and. Um, you know, I just say, you know, I don't feel like we need to um, be in the constitution whatsoever. We need a completely new constitution that's, um, you know, um, assisted by international um, experts who can help advise on this. And it's based on First Nations sovereignty. You know, we don't need to, like, retrofit ourselves into this racist old constitution. And I just want to follow up with a, a brief quote from my dad, which is... Um, actually about reconciliation, but for me it aligns like very, very closely um, to constitutional recognition. And it's 
um, my dad, Kevin Gilbert, and it's from his book, Aboriginal Justice, Sovereignty, Treaty, the Law and Land. Just bear with me while it loads really quickly. Um, and also I'd like to say that, you know, um, myself along with Sister Lydia were part of the many people who walked out of um, Uluru um, and didn't want and didn't feel that that was a good faith process whatsoever. So there was about, I think, 37 or so people where the media reported several, but there's many people um, who didn't, you know, want to be a part of that process. Um, and it's over the matter of sovereignty, um, you know, and there's a lot of stories. No one's heard that side of the story. And, you know, I think personally there's huge issues with the Uluru Statement as it came out, but also a lot of facts about how that process went down also need to um, be examined as well because a lot of the people who are attending were paid employees of the Referendum Council. I'd suggest that the majority of people who attended there were paid by the Referendum Council. In fact, um, if you look at... Um, well, no, not everyone was, but uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, Lydia, can you? Um, I think you know, and it was raised earlier in earliest um, in the earlier session around the division in our communities, um, and I think it's fundamental to anything that we go forward with. And I think part of the, the biggest problem of the division in our communities is the, the, the class that is going on. You know, the, the rich black fella and the poor black fella. And there's not many in between. You're either rich or you're poor. And the rich are the captain's picks. And they're the ones that are making decisions for everybody else. And that's where the division is actually happening. So we're not building our people up in our poorest communities. And it's the same people being regurgitated that are calling themselves leaders and leading us down maybe a, the wrong path, maybe the right path. But until all of our people in our clans and nations self-determine their own destiny, no one's ever going to agree with the captain's picks. And that's what happened with the, the Yulara Statement or Uluru Statement, whatever you want to call it. It's happening with the Victorian Treaty process. It's now happening in the Queensland Treaty process. And it'll probably happen in the Northern Territory Treaty process. So be very careful about... Because when I grew up, I was told, you don't leave anyone behind. And that's what I'm seeing. So I want to, yeah, I suppose that's part of the problem of the division and we're not going to go anywhere unless we bring everyone with us. I actually lost the original gift and we put this together, so I'm, I'm very sorry. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. 
visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more. Thank you.